This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. I hope you're having a uh, good weekend so far. A lot to do, obviously. Coming up, we're going to talk about the, the Paris Climate Agreement. And, and the hysteria over Trump backing out of this thing. Um, the hysteria, is, it's, it's absurd. It, it's so bizarre because you have two types of environmentalists. And we'll talk all about this coming up. But you have two types of environmentalists when this Paris Accord passed, uh, I guess, it was a year and a half ago. One group said, oh, it's so historic. So wonderful. So historic. So amazing. And then you had other environmentalists who said, wait a second. This is a giant pile of nothing. It doesn't, doesn't do any." Now, I happen to fall into that category. So when you realize what the Paris Accord actually is, which we'll talk about, tell you exactly what it is, and and then you you see that Trump you know, backed out of it, and then you look at all the hysteria, you're like, well, what are people hysterical about? It was nothing. So we'll, we'll do that coming up. I think we can do that in this hour. We're going to talk with Karen Vaughn, whose son was a Navy SEAL, was killed in 2011 in Afghanistan. She has a book out, which is fantastic called World Changer, and we're going to talk to a farmer, a local farmer here in uh, California, and and we're going to share with you the most absurd regulation maybe I've heard ever going against this farmer, and finally he, at least, is fighting back. So we got a lot of good stuff coming up today. I want to start off here, though, because over last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, or I should say Memorial Day, I was driving around, and and, uh, my local show had the best of, and we played replayed an interview that I did with a World War II soldier. Unbelievable story. He was shot down in France, so enemy territory, crashed into a mountain, hiked down the mountain, enemy territory, came across a house that had a, a Christian symbol on the front porch. It wasn't a cross, but it was some, something like, like culturally French and Christian that, that was on the front. And he was the preacher's son. So he thought, you know, maybe these people would, would help him. Some food, safety, water. But he decided not to knock on their door because he thought that if they helped him, he would be putting them in danger. So he kept walking. And he's injured, he's got broken everything. And, and, he, and he kept walking and came across another house, same thing, and decided not to ask for help. 
and kept going. And then he was captured and spent years in captivity. And that thought process blows my mind. We all like to think that we're not selfish. And even if you are genuinely not a selfish person and you're very thoughtful of others and you always think of other people first, if your option was, I'll wait outside in enemy territory until I probably get caught and then go spend years in a prison camp, or I have a broken arm, I'm starving, I'll probably die out here in the freezing cold, so maybe I'll just ask these people for some help. And maybe they'll give me some food and a blanket. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure 100% of people would choose to knock on the door for help. But not this veteran. Not this man. Stunning story. The selflessness in, in the midst of his horrible circumstances. His, he, he put other people's welfare ahead of his. Strangers. Crazy story. It was a couple months ago, and I'm glad, Eric, that you that you replayed that. So that being said, I read a, I read a great analysis from David French the other day. Uh, let me start here, though. So this is James Mattis, Jim Mattis, Matt and Dog Mattis, our Secretary of Defense. He did a long interview with Dexter Filkins, who's a really great writer for The New Yorker. So this is Dexter writing. He says, when I asked Matt and Dog... What worries him? What worried him most in his new position as Secretary of Defense? I expected him to say ISIS or Russia or the defense budget. All right, so think about that. So this reporter says, uh, you know, Mr. Mattis, Secretary Mattis, what are you most worried about? What worries you the most about this new position? Wasn't ISIS? Wasn't Russia? Instead, he said, quote, the lack of political unity in America, the lack of fundamental friendliness. It seems like an awful lot of people in America and around the world feel spiritually and personally alienated. Whether it be from organized religion or from local community school districts or from their governments. That's what Mad Dog Mattis is most worried about. So French noticed that every war movie you see has the same stereotypical characters. You have the guy from Brooklyn with a crazy accent. You have the Kentucky redneck who's never left his hillbilly town. And you have the Puerto Rican guy, right? It's like the same, the same thing. But So they come from all walks of life. And you got the rich guy and the poor guy. And this, this, you know, totally, completely different childhoods, everything in every way. But they come together because they share a common mission. These are the stereotypes in every war movie because it's true. It's based on reality. People who would never encounter each other in the real world. Real world. Maybe even people who would hate each other in any other context. In the military, they form a bond that is unique in the human experience. And that is the point where they will lay down their lives for this person. And that's the only way our military works is if it, if it happens like that. So let's think about this. If Mad Dog says, if Mattis says that the biggest worry he has is lack of unity. Think about this question. What is one cultural 
political, social, or religious trend in America that pulls people together more than it pushes us apart. Can you think of anything? So something in our culture, something political, something social, something religious, like anything in America, any trend in America today that pulls people closer together rather than pushes us apart. Is there anything? For the love of Pete, ESPN is now so political people can't watch it anymore. Millions of people every month stopping watching ESPN. There's nothing. I can't think of anything that... Truly, in our, in our culture today, pulls us together rather than pushes us apart. I can't find I can't think of any one single thing. Now, maybe, I mean, not too long ago, we could at least find a piece of unity in our belief in God. I mean, that's like a most basic, fundamental thing that people all across America and in our culture at least had that. But last week we talked about how only 26 or excuse me, how 26% of Americans don't believe in God. And usually it's like 10% historically last couple generations, about 10% of people are atheists. Don't believe in God. And now it's 26%. So we can't even have a fundamental base conversation, understanding that we both believe in God. Like you can't even count on that. I'll end here with one more quote from Mattis. He said, I came out of the tight knit Marine Corps. But I've lived on college campuses for three and a half years. Go back to Ben Franklin, Mattis said, and his descriptions about how the Iroquois nations lived and worked together, which we will do. We will go back to that. Compare that to America today. I think that when you look at veterans coming out of the wars, they're more and more just slapped in the face by this isolation and they're used to something better. He says they think it's PTSD, which it can be, but it's really about alienation. If you lose any sense of being part of something bigger, then why should you care about your fellow man? I absolutely think that's why vets are 9% of the population, but 18% of suicides. You've heard before that more than 20 veterans a day commit suicide. More than 20 a day. And there's a lot of reasons for this. And this is is a broad brush that's not applicable to everyone. But I think for a lot of them, as Mattis is saying, you go from the high, a veteran goes from, a service member goes from the high of, I'm a part of something important. We have a common mission. These are my brothers. I'll die for them and they'll die for me. Common mission. We love each other. I'll die for them. So you go from that into our normal everyday culture of, who cares about anyone? Zero unity, zero mission, zero focus. Everyone just floating around, seeing where the wind blows. No love for each other. No sacrifice for each other. No thought for other people. Forget about laying your life down for the person next to you. You're going to break. I mean, we get in arguments over whose parking spot they. I mean, so can you like you see this mountaintop of of fellow of, of unity, mountaintop of unity, truly a mountaintop of unity in the military with the man, the brother next to you into whatever the heck we're doing in our culture today. I can absolutely see how a vet would feel so alienated when they come back down from that mountaintop of selflessness and unity and into the valley of selfishness and division. How depressing that would be. I don't know. Just something I wanted to share. 
when the Secretary of Defense says that the greatest threat to our nation, and, and the, General Mattis is a man we should listen to, our greatest, the greatest threat to our nation is a lack of purpose and unity at home. one 888 I want to come back and uh, talk about the Hayabusa effect. Because I think that's a major contributor to uh, where we are today. We'll do that next. one 888 Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. Slider, you saw the other day that uh, some eighth graders from Jersey visited Washington, D.C., and they had a chance to take their class picture with Paul Ryan. But a hundred of, I don't know how many kids were there, but a hundred of the eighth graders refused to have their picture taken with them. A big class photo with Paul Ryan. Here's one of the kids. I don't like to take a picture with somebody that I can't associate with. 13 years old. What are you talking about? What if it's someone you can't associate with? You're 13. Let's say somebody's not nice to me at school, for example. I wouldn't take a picture with them, probably, this 13-year-old said. And said that, he went on to say that uh, Speaker Ryan is a man who puts his party before his country. What you, what's, what's going on? Why did this happen? This happened because 8th graders have lived, so 13 years. They're 13 years old. 8th graders have lived in a hyper-politicized world. For their entire lives. They know no different. They've grown up and they've stewed in this world where you are to hate everyone with a different opinion. Like, think of this sentence. This is such a little mini, like they are university social justice warriors in training. What kind of line is this? I don't take a picture with somebody that I can't associate with. Why can't you associate with Speaker Ryan? Why can't, are you saying Speaker Ryan won't associate with you? What are, you, like, what are you talking about? That's, that's such a nonsensical social justice warrior thing to say. You're 13 years old. This is, this is the new normal. Or at least this is the normal that, that they are used to. So I was reading an article this weekend in uh, Road and Track magazine about the, now if there's any motorcycle people listening now, uh, I am, I am, prepared to be rebuked on the pronunciation of this, but the Hayabusa Hayabusa type motorcycle. So there's an article from uh, Jack Barreth. He says, it's a phrase I, the, the Hayabusa effect, the Hayabusa effect. He said, it's a phrase I coined many years ago after meeting a fellow who owned a turbocharged Suzuki Hayabusa. This was the first time I've heard of such a machine. Nobody needs a turbocharged Hayabusa. <laughs> 
After all, the bone stock Hayabusa, the one they will cheerfully sell to novice teens for about 11 grand, rips the quarter mile in under 10 seconds. And with the factory fitted speed limiter removed, it's good for 202 miles per hour. A Hayabusa will kill you quicker than just about anything. The task has not yet been invented that requires a faster motorcycle than the Suzuki Hayabusa. Yet, there are plenty of turbo Hayabusas out there. And every turbo Busa owner I've ever met tells me the exact same thing. They say, at first, the Hayabusa seemed crazy fast. But I got used to it. And I wanted something that gave me the same thrill the Busa did when I first got it. So think about, so it's called the Hayabusa effect. All right, you get something that's crazy, totally unnecessary, out of control fast, and then you use it for a while, and you it's like normal, and now you need something else. Think about it this way. We were never designed as human beings to travel any faster than we can run. Right? That's how we were designed. How fast can you run? That's, that's it. That's as fast as we were supposed to go. And then we got on the back of a horse. And then we invented planes and then rocket ships. And in a blink of an eye, truly a blink of an eye, 200 years of, human, of our human history, most recent human history, 200 years, that's nothing. We went from, and the story I've shared a million times, Ulysses S. Grant getting on a train saying, this is insanely fast, eight miles per hour. It's like we've reached the pinnacle of human travel at eight miles an hour. We went from that to a motorcycle that can blow past 145 like it's nothing. And we just get used to it. And I think we've all experienced a little bit of this in our, in our lives, right? If you're leaving your driveway in the morning and you hit the 30 miles per hour zone and it's, it's fine. But at the end of the day, you come off the highway, right? You get off the five or the 15 and then you get off the highway and going down to 30, it's like you're not even moving. All right, so, we've, so we all get that relativity. Here's why I bring this up, though, because this is nothing insightful or, or special. It's a, we can use a million analogies like this with drugs or anything else, right? You start with one drug and then you need a bigger high, 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 you get more and more, more. Here's the key. This is what the, 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 the writer, uh, Jack Barra, said in uh, Road and Track magazine. He said, it's also worth noting that adapted to, so in this case, you're adapted to the speed of the motorcycle. He says, adapted to doesn't necessarily mean became highly competent at operating. He said, I've coached a lot of supercar drivers who were just playing bored by the way their Ferraris accelerated in a straight line, but were a danger to themselves and anyone around them at any cornering. So moving away from cars and motorcycles, we'll move away from the metaphor and into my point, into politics and how we view this political world. We are going faster than ever. Faster than ever. It's insane. Everything's in hyperdrive. I hope you were able to turn off radio and TV for, for most of uh, the Memorial Day weekend, right? I kind of just de-stress for a second, but everything's on hyperdrive, uh, hyperdrive uh, overdrive, just hypertension all the time. And it's our new normal. We're used to it, right? We've adapted to it. But that doesn't mean we're highly competent at operating at this speed. It doesn't mean we're good at living in this gear. We may be used to it, but it doesn't mean we're good at it. We may have adapted to it, but it doesn't mean it's healthy. And I think the fact that we have eighth graders who go to D.C. and there's the Speaker of the House, and they say, oh, pff, I refuse to have my picture taken with him. <laughs> what? You're 13 years old. Go take your picture with the Speaker of the House. 
I think the fact that we have eighth graders, 13 year olds saying that, I think it means we're not controlling our political liquor very well. Does that, I, I'm going to mix up a bunch of analogies here, but does that, you, are you with me? We're not handling the, the, the tight turns in our Ferraris very well if uh, we have 13 year olds acting like this. If our animosity and our politicalness is overflowing so much that eighth graders are drowning in it. And they have enough hatred and political animosity in their hearts for a group of adults, <laughs> but, but they're 13. Like, like we have way too much ourselves in. We've adapted to this political hyperdrive, but I'm not sure we can handle it. And I guarantee it's not helping. I just thought of that going back to Mad Dog Mattis's point about uh, the biggest thing he's worried about is lack of unity, lack of fundamental friendliness. Fundamental friendliness. 13-year-olds. No, no. I don't take pictures of people I can't associate or that won't associate with me. Or what, like, what are you talking about? We got to rein this back in. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show on The Blaze. Radio Network's the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on the Blaze Radio Network. Probably soon. I don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, everybody I've talked to is going back and again and again and again to the, uh, well, they call it the threat of automation. Right. And, and like the headlines that I'm seeing are how computers are going to uh, to steal our jobs. And I I don't really know that it makes sense to anthropomorphize it. Quite, I mean, I, I don't I don't <laughs> right. think the computers are, you know, going around like twirling their mustache and laughing maniacally. But um, it's going to happen. I mean, it's going to happen just as surely as as the Internet messed up the TV and the TV messed up cinema and cinema disrupted radio and radio messed up the newspapers and Kindle screwed up the booksellers and so it goes. But I don't think it's anything to, to panic over. It's going to happen. But as it relates to the minimum wage conversation and as it relates to labor and management, the only thing I can add to it is that with my foundation, we try and remind people that learning a skill that's actually in demand negates the whole conversation. If you can weld, if, you can, if you're a plumber, if you're an electrician, if, if you're willing to learn a skill that has a pre-existing demand, then you don't have to constantly negotiate and talk about a few extra dollars in order to stay in a position that, frankly, I, I don't know how you advance in that kind of thinking. That's right. Right. So, so our philosophy is pretty simple. Um, if you have a skill and that skill is in demand, you can work where you want and you can write your own ticket. If you don't, you're going to have to hope the next negotiation works out and the next minimum wage position falls favorably in your direction, which strikes me as fatalistic. It's Lighting Crusaders. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. Remember last week we talked about, there's a headline someone sent me, Sacramento Bee or something about how um, after school programs are struggling to survive. And I was thinking, why? Why are after school programs struggling to survive? And it's because of the minimum wage. 
And we've talked many times about uh, different charities, right? different not-for-profit organizations that are in big trouble because of the minimum wage. But I, I know we've shared these before, but I just want to I want to bring them up again because I want to make sure we just don't do a quick flash in the pan and then you never hear this again. I want to make sure we are armed with this reality. Although I fear it's it's too late for this to even matter uh, anymore. But I have the employment numbers here specifically for San Diego. So I want to take this from the theoretical, from the prediction to the reality of what happened. So I have the, this is from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is from the federal government. These are the official employment numbers. And I just put it down to San Diego. This is true for every city across the country. This is true for every place where they've done this before. But they take a line. We made a line graph over time from 2006 until today. And there's two lines. One are restaurant jobs and the other line is non-restaurant jobs. Now, most restaurant jobs are minimum wage. So we have employment growth of restaurant jobs over time and employment growth of non-restaurant jobs. Again, restaurant jobs, usually minimum wage jobs. So over time, they follow a very similar trend. They, they match each other pretty perfectly. And they both saw a major downturn in 2007 with the recession. For the last five years or so, the non-restaurant jobs stayed steady about a 1% to 2% growth. It's about the last five years, 1% to 2% growth. And restaurant jobs actually did a little bit better. Uh, they had about a 2% growth, uh, pretty steady for the last five years. But then in California, excuse me, in San Diego, July 2016, dropped. The, the restaurant jobs dropped. That's when the minimum wage went up to 1050. Non-restaurant jobs stayed the same. So the minimum wage, when the minimum wage went up, re- restaurant jobs went from a 2% growth to a 0% growth. So there were no new jobs. That, that's important. It's not like people lost their jobs at this point. There were just no new jobs. Then the next minimum wage went into effect. January 2017, beginning of this year, minimum wage went up to 11.50. Non-restaurant jobs stayed about the same, 1%, 2% growth. Restaurant jobs dropped to negative 4% growth. Negative 4%. So that now we're losing jobs. Now, again, this is the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Restaurant jobs, because of the minimum wage, dropped a net loss of jobs. Again, this is not my prediction. This is what happened. This is what always happens. City after city that has ever done this, the same thing always happens. Yet still, the people who who want this are lifted up as the heroes and protectors of the lower skilled. We'll never understand that. And just wait till the minimum wage goes up to $15 is going to be even more drastic. One more micro clip here. My thing with the minimum wage and with automation and with all of it is that anything we do that knocks the bottom rungs off of the ladder that we all must surely climb. Yes, for sure. Is self-defeating. So if getting to 15 bucks an hour hastens automation and therefore eliminates thousands of opportunities for kids who, by the way, are not just learning how to flip a burger, but how to tuck their shirt in, of course. how to show up on time. All this basic stuff. I mean, how else do you learn that except by being uh, in your first or second job? We're going to arbitrage logic right out of the equation and then R2-D2 take a bow. <laughs> that's not bad. Add the special size very- Um, that's the big, that's long term. That's the bit, losing the bottom rung of the ladder. That's the real consequence 
of the minimum wage. So to bring it back around, the guaranteed minimum income, it will probably happen, but eventually, not anytime soon. 20 years, I think. It'll be a little while. Um, but it'll probably have to exist, quote-unquote have to exist, because so few people will ever experience that bottom rung of the economic ladder, and they will therefore not learn the skill sets necessary to even hold the job. So people will just be incapable of holding a job at all. And we're one step closer to idiocracy and guaranteed minimum income. Everyone makes 40 grand a year, 50 grand a year, whatever it is, for doing literally nothing. What kind of society is that? But that's where we're headed, and minimum wage is making it happen. 1-888-933-93, Mike Slater Show on The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater, Slater, thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. So um, the, the outrage over the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, remember, it was, yeah, it was last weekend when Trump went to, to Brussels and the reports afterwards said that uh, all the, the European leaders, the French, the German leaders were, were so, so rattled, uh, scared after meeting with President Trump scared about some of the things he said in, in some closed door meetings. And I heard reports about this and I'm like, oh, geez, like what, what did he say? What, did, what happened? I, would, I wish we could find out. And then I keep reading all these articles and, and we know what he said, or at least the gist of it. The reason that all these European leaders were so shaken to their core is because President Trump spoke out against the Paris Climate Agreement. <laughs> and they don't know what to do. They can't, they can't. I don't think they could go on with a president of the United States who wouldn't agree with the Paris Climate Agreement. So let's talk for a few minutes about what a worthless piece of nothing the Paris Climate Agreement is. And... If you could compare what I'm going to tell you here with the manufactured outrage that you've heard on TV these last few days, the panel discussions about how much he hates the planet, the speeches from Al Gore about how time is running out, just give me a trillion dollars before it's too late, that, like all that, compare all that that you've heard with the truth that I'm going to share here. First, I want to start off with Secretary of State John Kerry, then Secretary of State John Kerry at the Paris event, right? This is at the Paris 2015 climate conference. Now, I, I have the audio of this, but I don't have it in front of me here. So I'm just going to read what he said. Okay. But I promise you, he said it. I have the video of it. It's out there. It's not a hidden thing. He said at the agreement or at the, in Paris, he said, the fact is that even if every American biked to work, carpooled to school, used only solar panels to power their homes, if, if we each planted a dozen trees, if we somehow eliminated all of our domestic greenhouse gas emissions, guess what? That still wouldn't be enough to offset the carbon pollution coming from the rest of the world. Make note of that word carbon pollution. We'll talk about that later. 
if all the industrialized nations went to zero emissions, remember what I just said, all the industrial emissions went down to zero emissions. It wouldn't be enough. Not when more than 65% of the world's carbon pollution comes from the developing world. 65% of the world's carbon pollution comes from the developing world. So in there, I, I don't exactly know if he's including these countries. I imagine he is. Uh, India, China, and Russia. Now, these are three, I mean, two of the most populous nations, India and China, and, and then Russia. And these three nations have decided to do nothing with the Paris <laughs> Agreement. Let me get a little more specific here. This Paris Agreement leading up to it, so much hype, so much political capital, legacies were... Uh, you know, on trial here, like legacies were put to, on, were at st on stake, right? And there was so much hype that literally any agreement was going to be celebrated and lifted up as the great, a great victory for the planet. Even if the agreement did nothing, all the world leaders needed to say, we did something. Are you with me? They just truly needed to say we did something. And it all started a year prior, 2014 in Lima, Peru, where it was decided that each country would come up with their own plan to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. This is called the uh, INDC, the Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. The Intended Nationally Determined Contribution. So each plan was determined by the country itself which means there's no objective standard of measurement required by any country. This is a little tricky, but like one country could say, we're going to reduce this. Another country could say, well, we're going to reduce this. And another country could say, well, we're going to, and it's, they're all three different things because every country is allowed to do their own thing or was, so it's, there's no standard measurement between countries. That's point number one. Now, just to define this a little clear, take India, you got 1.1 billion people in India. India could come back, and, and this is what they did. They came back and they said, all right, here's how much greenhouse gases we plan on emitting over the next 30 years. We could emit more than that, but we're not going to. Barack Obama deemed that a great victory. He deemed that a reduction. Because India said, let me, let me, so let's say India emits 10 pounds of greenhouse gases today. Just roll with it. They say, listen, by 2030, we're going to emit a thousand pounds of greenhouse gases. Now we're doing 10. We're going to emit a thousand. We could emit 10,000 if we want it, but we're not going to, we're just going to emit a thousand up. Oh, what a great reduction. Sign this agreement. So then they sign the agreement and then uh, Barack Obama and everyone else in the Western world can travel around the world talking about what a great agreement they came to. And look, the whole world agrees with us. That catastrophic climate change is going to kill us all. Meanwhile, India didn't do anything. China didn't do anything. Russia hasn't done anything. None of the developing world countries have done anything at all. So point number one, there's no objective standard of measurement. Point number two, there's no actual reductions. And point number three is there's no punishment. There's no mechanism to keep people accountable here. There, there's no binding agreements. There's no sanctions proposed. There's no legal consequences. It's all just global peer pressure. That's it. 
So you're saying, well, why did anyone sign on to this? Well, the Western countries signed on to it because they wanted to pat themselves on the back. They wanted to lift themselves up for doing something historic. And that's why you hear so much about how historic this agreement was. The only reason the developing world signed on to it is because they got $100 billion in foreign aid. So currently the, the entire, uh, it's called the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. They give $100 billion in foreign aid to the developing world. This doubles it. So now, we, now they get another $100 billion. So they, they're like, okay, fine. They signed, they signed. They're not going to do anything, but they signed it. So it's really odd because you have an environmentalist group division here. You got some groups who are very connected to the administration saying, oh, this is amazing. It's the greatest thing ever. It's historic. Oh, it's it's so fantastic. The planet is saved, blah, blah. Then you got these other environmentalists who are more in it for the cause, like they're in it for the actual environment as opposed to the money and the power. And they looked at the agreement and said, well, well, this is, this is a total fraud. This is, this thing, this does nothing. This It would be one thing if I, as a conservative, came here and said, listen, thank goodness we're getting out of this climate agreement. It is dangerous. It is wrong. It's going to impoverish everyone and blah, blah, blah. I'm not even saying that. I'm saying this thing's just stupid. And there's no reason to be in it. I mean, it does cost $100 billion. It will raise our electric rates. Like, it is bad, but it's not, it's not the end of the world. Just It's nothing either. Let's like take it or leave it kind of. So here, I'll end here. If all the countries followed through with their promised cuts, if all of them did, which none of them will, but if they all did, then according to their models, the temperature of the planet will be reduced uh, by 0.05 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. <laughs> and that's if everyone follows through. Think five hundredths of a, de- of a degree. Like, what are you talking about? You can't even measure that. It's absurd. The whole thing is just, it's just nothing. So backing out of it, like, yeah, of course you would. But there's no reason to stay in it. There's no reason even for it to exist other than these Western leaders can uh, now tell you how wonderful they are. 1-800-988-900-3393. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network.